The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anyone good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I, I first heard this in the mid-90s. You know, in the 1900s, as Elliot would say. I, I first heard it just before the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, a time when Christian leaders from around the country spoke loudly and vehemently against the President of the United States declaring in loud accord that character matters above all. Christian leaders took to the airwaves. They wrote letters and op-eds flooding the national discourse with clarion calls to morality, to integrity, to character. Warning of a national moral decay and a crisis of character on the verge of sinking our democracy, these became the standard talking points of Christian conversation. Books with titles like How Shall We Now Live and Who You Are When No One's Looking became required reading in Bible colleges and seminaries. Over the past four plus years, you'd expect the same things would be shouted from the rooftops. Character matters, moral decay, integrity. But instead, they rallied around and echoed lies and deceit trading in conspiracy theories and championing integrity-less leadership, calling upon millions to support it, justifying themselves and their positions at every turn in their lust for power and position, whittling away their own integrity, their own character, leaving a wave of destruction in their wake. Ironically enough, the author of Who You Are When No One's Looking was removed as a pastor of one of the largest churches in America because of his own character-related scandal. Is it any wonder that Christianity has been in a free fall these past several years? Nary a week goes by that I don't have a conversation with someone who walked away from the faith, who wants nothing to do with it ever again. The hurt, the pain etched across their face, dripping heavy from everywhere. In the common refrain, 
I can't be a part of something that looks and stands so opposed to the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus they claim to follow. I see a whole lot of following in the church. It's just not Jesus. Each and every one of these conversations an echo of what Mahatma Gandhi purportedly said decades ago. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I know, I, I know that there are some of you right now, I, I wish I could look into your eyes, but I know that there are some of you nodding your heads because this, this is your story. You're finding yourself at odds with the church, with Christianity, with religion, with, with Jesus, wondering, is it even true? Because from what you've been told of Jesus, the way in which Christians have traded Jesus and his teachings for conspiracy theories and lies, it doesn't look very true. And I get that. I'm sorry. So very, very sorry. Earlier this week, the columnist David Brooks wrote a piece in the New York Times entitled, Trump Ignites a War Within the Church. The byline read, After a week of Trumpist mayhem, white evangelicals wrestle with what they've become. One core feature of Trumpism, writes Brooks, is that it forces you to betray every other commitment you might have to the truth, moral character, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Trumpism has wrapped its greedy, tiny little hands around the neck of the church, demanding its allegiance. And you've witnessed, you've witnessed it firsthand. You've been wounded by it, hurt by it, and you're not alone. There is a war raging in the white church right now. In some circles, it's a war of silence and complicity. In others, it's loud and vitriolic. And all along the way, the streets are littered with the discarded faiths of people like you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what the white church has done to you and for what the white church has become. I'm sorry for the pain that it has caused, the turmoil, the tumult. I'm sorry. And I know, I know that that's not enough, but I hope that it can be a start. And I want you to know that I know what that feels like. Trevor knows what that feels like. The, the two of us haven't been immune to this war. The, the two of us each have been caught up in this war. Each of us have lost thousands of dollars in support for saying things as controversial as character matters. True story. Just in case you don't know this, we're a new church. We're, we're not even three years old yet. And, and the way in which we're able to do what we do, the way in which United is able to exist financially at this point, is through the support of donors from around the country. It's, it's how our salaries are paid and how we support our families. And when these donors find something that we say that they don't like, they pull that support. Money talks. And it can be used and, and wielded as a weapon against us to force our silence. 
it's been a regular occurrence of ours these past three years. Because as Brooks writes, Trumpism forces you to betray every other commitment you might have. So if you're a part of United, in some respects, this is a call to give, to help us move forward. But more so than that, it's a call to let you know that Trevor and I have some skin in this game. We're putting things on the line because we believe in truth. We believe deeply in this Jesus we follow and talk about. And you know, as much as I want to believe that this is a new problem, it's not. This has been present in the life and history of the church since before the church was even formed, before Jesus walked the earth. It's not just Trumpism and Christian nationalism today. It's the three evils that Dr. King outlined in 1967. It's racism and white supremacy. It's poverty and classism. It's militarism. In the 1930s and 1940s, the church in Germany went to war over their allegiance to Hitler. In the 1800s, the church in the United States went to war over slavery. The church has been at war over interpretations of scripture and over wars and rumors of wars, and the list is long and grotesque. But what we're facing, it's not new. I think it's what Nathaniel was wrestling with as he sat underneath the fig tree. The Apostle Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, most scholars actually believe they're one and the same person. Because in some lists of Jesus' disciples, you'll see Nathaniel or you'll see Bartholomew, but never both at the same time, and each name occupying the same spot in the list. The name Bartholomew is something akin to a last name, meaning son of Ptolemy. Now, Nathaniel was one of the first to actually follow Jesus, but it, it, it didn't happen without some convincing. You see, Nathaniel approached Jesus with skepticism. Is this really the guy? Is this really true? You see, Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree, which seems like a, a nice place to sit, but in, in Judaism, in rabbinic literature, this is a big deal. You see, sitting under the fig tree was the proper place to study the Torah or, or the law, the sacred scriptures. And so here is Nathaniel, sitting under the fig tree, studying the scriptures in search of the Messiah, the one who was to come, the one who was going to rescue them from their oppression, to heal the land and usher in the world to come, the Olam Chava, a world of wholeness, of peace, of love. And I can just imagine Nathaniel thinking through all of the failed messiahs that had come before, dozens that promised hope only to be squashed, many who ignited the dream of possibility only to be extinguished by force. And up comes his friend Philip. Nathaniel, it's happened. We found him. The one that Moses wrote about in the Torah, the one the prophets promised was coming. The Messiah is here, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel was a true believer, someone who really had believed that the Messiah would come, had placed his hope in the promises of God, but, but his skepticism was strong. Really? It's happened? He's here now? You can almost see the face of disbelief, the Stanley. 
Really, Philip? Really? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? I mean, come on, man. I, I, I've seen enough failed messiahs to know that it's probably not happening now, and definitely not from Nazareth, let alone in my lifetime. There's just so much hypocrisy. There's just so many lies. The failure of our people. Man, I'm tired. I just don't have it in me. I just don't know if I can believe it right now. You see, the environment that they were living in was intense. Regular uprisings against the state. Insurrectionists running rampant. Plotting, planning new ways to overthrow the rule of Rome. And you can imagine that Nathaniel was just tired. I mean, I get it. I'm tired, and it's only been a week and a half of an environment that Nathaniel was experiencing daily. I mean, if I'm Nathaniel, I'm good with taking a wait-and-see approach. I'll just sit back and let it all unfold and then jump in if it's good. But Philip? <laughs> Philip has this great response. I... I absolutely love it. Philip looks at Nathaniel with the, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed look of a true believer and says, Come and see. He doesn't try and convince him. He, he doesn't try and prove anything to him. He, he doesn't jerk him around and tell him that he's an idiot and that he's misreading the Torah, that he's misinterpreting the times. No, he just says, Come and see. What a beautiful friend. caring friend. And he, and he challenges Nathaniel out of his wait-and-see posture with a beautiful invitation to come and see. Philip invites Nathaniel to experience Jesus, to, to encounter Jesus, to, to trust the process. And you know what? I have to wonder if Philip wanted Nathaniel's perspective on this too. Knowing that Nathaniel was a bit skeptical, burned by the history of all these failed messiahs, maybe, maybe Nathaniel's perspective, his, his doubt, his questions would be, would be healthy for him, strengthening for him, good for him. That it would help to strengthen his own resolve, his own faith. And so together, Together they met up with Jesus. And Nathaniel, in his encounter with Jesus, through, through a conversation that, that barely lasts a verse, but certainly lasted longer in real life. A fascinating conversation that I'm sure was remarkable and beautiful. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You see, I, I tell you this story because Nathaniel, one who started his journey with doubt and skepticism, who, who didn't allow Philip's enthusiasm to sway him, he encountered Jesus and followed him. He didn't follow Philip. He didn't follow Peter or Andrew. He followed Jesus. And some of us are having our very own Nathaniel moment. We simply need to come and see. We simply need to experience this Jesus and dive headlong into the story of the gospel, leaning into the ways of Jesus and, and not evangelicalism, 
following hard after Jesus and his ways, and, and pay no mind to the evangelicalism of our past. Pay no attention to the destructive words of Christian leaders who look, like, who look nothing like this Jesus of Scripture. For some of us, we, we need to leave our religious traditions and our religious upbringing in 2020 and walking forward together into a life with Jesus, experiencing the wild Messiah as a new community of people who are devoted to the ways of Jesus. Here at United, Jesus is our litmus test. It should be our litmus test. And, and if you see someone who claims Christ but looks nothing like him, then pay him or her no mind. Don't let them help you toss your faith into the gutter. You see, while that Brennan Manning quote still rings hard and true, this is not about going it alone and throwing out Christianity, the way of Jesus. This is about us, together, walking towards Jesus, coming and seeing who he is and what this radical life of devotion and followership is all about. It's about coming together to see how his way is the way, and that his way is the way of hope and change, this is who we are. This is what we are about as a church community, a people who are devoted to Jesus and his ways of love and healing and peace, a, a people who come from diverse spiritual beginnings and backgrounds, but, but who come together to dream of a new way of being in this world centered on Jesus. That's why we're dreamers and artists and activists and faithful friends like Philip was to Nathaniel, faithful friends who will not give up on who Jesus has called us to be and do together. And in this, you'll never walk alone. So today, don't give up on your faith. Don't toss it in the gutter. Lean in to Jesus. Lean in with us, this community. Join us in a few minutes at 945 in our Sunday circle and, and process this with us. And together, let us be the people of Jesus. The people of love and hope and healing. The people of justice of truth, people of love. Amen. Amen.